0: We're back in Genesis chapter 9 this morning, looking at verses 5 through 7. I told you that there were a couple of paradigm shifts uh, that we were going to be experiencing over these next couple of weeks. Last time we were together, we considered God's decree in Genesis 9 verses 1 through 4 regarding the new liberty that he had given mankind to eat every beast of the earth. And we traced that theme, if you recall, uh, of eating of meat through the scriptures, beginning with uh, that liberty here in Genesis chapter 9, then we talked through the precepts of Old Testament law, and then to the restored liberty in the Christian church, so that we considered this pretty significant paradigm shift as it related to the interaction between humanity and the creatures of the earth. But this was not the only paradigm shift that took place on that day, immediately following the flood. Not only was there this dramatic shift in interaction between humans and other living creatures, but we also see a dramatic shift in interaction between humans and one another. Now, recall prior to, Gen- prior to the flood, uh, the condition of humanity. And the condition of humanity prior to the flood, we saw a really climax in Genesis chapter six, where it says in verse five, and God saw that wickedness of man that the wickedness of man, excuse me, was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then we continue in verse 11 where it says the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So Genesis 6 told us that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. Elaborating upon this that there in verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God and filled with violence. Now, as we have traced humanity thus far, we have seen only... Uh, at this time, for, for lack of a better way to put it, human self-regulation. A system defined by a lack of a system. We have not seen to this point in the text any sort of uh, governmental body. We have not even necessarily seen, as we might see uh, in the days of Abraham, a patriarchal system per se... We've seen something that, in our common vernacular, we would call anarchy. Now, as I say the word anarchy, it's very interesting to note that uh, for several, no doubt, that means chaos, disorder, and confusion. When we think of anarchy, if we use the word anarchy, that's what we think of, chaos, disorder, and confusion. But that's not actually what anarchy means, per se. Anarchy simply means the absence of a government system. Now, that being said, there's a reason why Many minds directly associate an absence of a government system with chaos, disorder, and confusion because every example of the absence of a government system in history has devolved into chaos, disorder, and confusion. And as we think through this, I want to take a moment, as it were, to to broaden our outlook on the Bible once again and, and consider the broader implications of what God is attempting to do as he had this information penned for us. And we've done this all throughout. We did it last week as well, where we tried to take a step back and we've said, okay, so God is telling us the narrative of what happened with Adam and Eve, of what happened with Cain and Abel, of what happened to Cain's posterity going through Lamech, of what happened to Abel's posterity. Well, not Abel's posterity because Abel died, but Seth's posterity and then going, tracing Seth's line. We trace through the, the, the line of the ungodly, those men that had chosen the portion of this life, right? And that would be through Cain's posterity, recognizing through that posterity, those that have chosen to put all of their hope and all of their intent on this life went one way. And then through Seth's line, then going through the line of Enoch, those that had chosen to follow the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord. And then, of course, that climaxing with Noah in his Day. So we've seen this broader narrative, uh, th- this macro narrative of what's going on. We looked at that last week as well, as we talked about the eating of meat. And this week, I want us to think through this again. The law that was given in the Old Testament. Well, last week, we considered in our, comp- uh, in our contemplations on eating meat, the unique context within which the law of Moses was written and the vast majority of the Old Testament operates It was a law given to that specific family, the family of Israel, promising specific blessings and specific cursings directly related to their disposition toward God in the land of promise that God had given unto them, the land that we would uh, call the promised land or Canaan or the Romans would eventually call Palestine, not the Palestine of today. They called the entire region Palestine, not based upon a certain people. As a matter of fact, it was rooted in the name Philistine, uh, but rather it's simply in the region at hand. Those blessings and those cursings, as we talked about it, specifically related to dietary, d- the dietary laws last week, did not fall upon the nations around Israel except to the degree that those nations sought to tempt the Lord by positioning themselves in direct opposition to Israel. So certainly, if Israel was doing what was right before God, and as we studied in our Sunday school hour this morning and for the last few weeks, say the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and the children of Mount Seir came up against the nation of Judah... We would recognize that the nation of Judah, God would bless the nation of Judah, and so there would be tremendously negative consequences upon those nations that came against Judah, specifically because they positioned themselves against God by positioning themselves against God's people. However, we do recognize that those blessings and those curses were for that nation alone. And then when Israel rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, God began working for a time through this new group of people that being not the biological family of Israel, but rather the spiritual family that is called the church, made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And when this transition was uh, happened, and we, we didn't talk about this very much last week, but when this transition happened, it was not that the law of Moses Went away per se. In a sense, it could not just go away because the Bible says that the law is a reflection of the character of God. The law is spiritual, the law is righteous. It's an accurate reflection of God's character. And to this end, though the words might go away and though the laws themselves might in that sense go away, the character of the law doesn't go away because the character of the law reflects the character of God. Now, Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, where he says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he's speaking directly here of the law of Moses. God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me. God forbid, he says. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So notice what Paul is saying here. The law is not wrong. The law is not bad. The law is not sin, nor is it the law that causes the problem that is sin. The law is a reflection of righteousness. But then he says, I had not known sin except the law told me it was sin. And because the law had told me, Paul speaking, that something is sin, then that works in me guilt. He says, so the, when, 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 I, when I learned of the law, sin revived and I died, Paul says. The idea there is that the law, the expectations of God, the righteousness of God being, being revealed to me is actually what revealed to me the extent of my sinfulness so that the more Paul learned about the law, the more he recognized how far short he fell of God's righteousness. And that's not necessarily the law's fault. It's my fault. I'm the one that's sinful, right? But it's also something I can't change because I was conceived in sin. I can't avoid my sin. My sin is a part of me. It is baked into me. It's a part, it's, it's a part of being in this mortal flesh. And to this end, as we're thinking through this, again, I'm trying to give you a broader narrative here. The first conclusion Paul makes here in Romans 7, verse 14, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So the law is not bad. I'm bad. I'm the one who's sinful. It's not, the problem is not that the law is what it is. The problem is that I can't live up to its standard. But this does make the law, though the law is not bad, though the law is not sin, this does make the law fundamentally insufficient because it can't fix me. And because it can't fix me, the only thing the law is able to do for me is show me just how far short I fall. It has no power to do anything in, 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 in bringing me up, in lifting me up. It's only there to show me how separated I am from God, how far short I fall from God. And that's where Paul continues in Romans chapter 8. We read in verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. The law was and indeed is very good at showing me just how far short I fall from righteousness. But what the law is utterly incapable of doing is fixing the problem. Not because the law is flawed, but because I am flawed. Because no man is able to keep the law. So if God made a law that is a true reflection of his character and yet made that law, knowing no man could possibly live up to it, then we ask, why did God give man the law to begin with? Why would he give man a law that he can't live up to, knowing he can't live up to it, as a reflection of his character? And we see a little bit here. I've expressed it a little bit, but it's best expressed in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says in verses 19 through 25, Wherefore then serveth the law. Why does the law exist? Why did the law exist? Why did God have it instituted in in Israel in the first place? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. He's saying the same thing that we saw in Romans chapter seven. The law is not against the promises of God. The law is not a bad thing. The law is not in contradiction per se to grace. He says, if there had been a law that could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scriptures hath concluded all under sin, that the promise of faith of Jesus by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So the law, Paul says, was added because of transgressions. And this is where we're going with this. So you say, Pastor, why are you talking about the law? I thought we were talking about government. What are you, what, what, what's going on here? This is where we're going with this. The law was added Because of transgressions, God added the law to what was already in place as a means by which to both guide mankind into what is right, but also to teach mankind the depths of his sin, that even if God gave every expectation, every opportunity of success and every incentive to obey him, which he did in the law. He gave every expectation unto righteousness, every incentive to do it. You obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. He gave that all to Israel. And Israel still fell short. And they didn't just fall short by a little bit, they absolutely and utterly failed. And in the same way that we look at Adam and Eve and we say, yes, Adam and Eve failed. Adam chose to go his own way. He chose to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He chose to be his own God. He heard Satan say, you shall be like gods knowing good and evil. Eve was deceived. Adam said, I want that. And we recognized at that time when we were talking about Adam and Eve that we, we, the, the tendency in the human mind is to say, well, if I was there, I would not have made that decision. You would have made that decision. And the same thing goes with Israel. We say, well, yeah, sure, Israel failed. But if we were there, maybe we wouldn't know. No, no, you would have too. And that's the point. That's the point. Israel is a, is a template. Israel is a example to show that even if God were to take a family, a family of those who by faith loved him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, And he were to separate them and he were to give them promises and he were to tell them, keep this law and you can be right with me. And if you obey it, I will even bless you. Your women will not be barren. The enemies will fall before you. You will have no plagues. You will have no famines. There will be no problems in your land if you will only obey me. They still chose to disobey, showing just how deep our sin goes just how rebellious, how headstrong and selfish we are. To this end, the law was and is designed for, for, for a specific reason, to be the clearest possible indication of just how short we fall of righteousness and just how much we need something outside of ourselves to reconcile us to God. That there's no way you or I can possibly be good enough for God. Therefore, we need someone to be good enough for us. And that, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he was righteous so that we could become the righteousness in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5. So from a broad perspective, the purpose of the law was not and is not to make men righteous. But rather to cause men to see their incapacity and so to seek for a mediator. And then when the knowledge of Jesus Christ is imparted to those who are weighed down by the burden of their insufficiency, their heavy heart will flee to Christ for relief from that weight and the joy of grace. So, we find that just beyond God doing things in history, God is also doing things with history. So God is, and very much so did in history, in time, give Israel this law and dispose himself toward them on the basis of this law. But we also see that God was establishing this law and the nation of Israel and everything that he was doing with Israel, he was also doing in a manner to show us, to show the rest of the world a better way. God is not just teaching lessons within the times and seasons. He is using these transitions from age to age in history, using them to teach, something, uh, to teach us something about ourselves and to teach something about him. And what we find is the same thing with how God has chosen to show man governance. So throughout each age, God has disposed his people to government in different ways. Within the age from Adam to Noah, man simply operated by the dictates of his own conscience. The way it's described in the scriptures is man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the question that was asked in that time was, will a man governed only by his own conscience before God do right and be able to reconcile himself to God? And the flood proves obviously no. Man, when he is given to do that which is right in his own eyes, does not seek unto God. There's a few that called upon the name of the Lord. Enoch walked with God. Noah sought unto the Lord, but they were dwindling. And instead, man was predisposed unto wickedness and violence. So then we come to Genesis chapter 9. And here within this transition, we see another age of of how God relates himself to man and how man relates himself one to another, where man is then governed by our higher body, and we'll discuss this in a minute. Again, I'm giving you the broader narrative and then we'll zoom in, where God is calling man to relate themselves one to another through a higher body that we might call government. And the question is, will a man governed by a higher body of men do right? and so be able to reconcile himself to God? And the answer in the Bible is no. So then God gives the law of Moses in Exodus. And we transition to another age, so that from the time of Moses going to the time of Jesus, we see Israel under the law. God giving the letter of the law supported by blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. And if a man would keep it, he would be righteous and so be reconciled to God. And in this scenario, will a man do right and so be reconciled to God? And the answer is no. Even God handing down his direct law did not work to compel and enable men to be reconciled to God. Now, recall that all throughout this, and we've talked about this already, Faith has always still reigned supreme. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So we have always seen that track of those uh, who, who, are recon- who are truly reconciled to God being reconciled by faith alone. But God is also building a narrative whereby by the time of the church, by the time of our time, we have a definitive proof in the word of God that nothing in man's be- even best efforts unto morality, unto clarity, unto clarity, unto government, unto structure, is at all able to make man anything other than the sinner that he was born. And this is why Jesus came, so that in this age of grace, following Jesus Christ, every solution dependent upon man himself has failed. And God instead reconciles mankind to himself with his own blood, thus fulfilling the law in himself and imputing that righteousness to us by faith. Okay, so that's the broader scope. That's the broader narrative of what God is doing, and we are working ourselves into it in that second period of time, the age of government. Let's look at this institution of government itself in verses 5 through 7, and our context takes us back to verse 1 where we read this. And God blessed Noah and his sons, And he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require it At the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. So last time we were together, we considered God's blessing upon man to eat of every creature that was upon the earth. And as we got to that unique prohibition where we said God had made a unique prohibition whereby he said that you may not eat of the blood of the animal. You may eat the animals, but you may not eat of their blood, which is, he said, the life thereof. And I told you last time that that requirement is significantly more about the next institution or the next paradigm shift than the actual paradigm shift of eating of meat. We don't necessarily see this idea of not eating the blood reiterated in the New Testament. We went to Acts chapter 15 last time where Peter got up and he testified of the the vision that he had of the sheets. And as he went to that vision, the conclusion of that meeting, according to Acts 15 was that they requested that the Gentiles do a few things, that they avoid idols, that they avoid things strangled, and that they avoid the eating of blood. And so it would seem as though, stepping into the New Testament, there would be the the reinitiation of this Genesis 9 requirement not to eat the blood of the animal with the animal itself. However, here's the problem. When Paul left that council, and he began teaching in Romans, like we read last week, and in Galatians, and in Colossians. You know what we never find? Any prohibition written about eating the blood. He does not actually carry that prohibition into any of his instructions to the New Testament church. And this is why I believe that when God set down that requirement, it was significantly more trying to set a template for what God would instruct as it relates to human government. It seems that what perhaps God is actually doing there through this prohibition of eating animals with the blood, which is the life, was to reflect a principle which God would use to help establish a system of government for man's self-regulation. So verse 5 says that God would require the blood of any man or even any beast Who shed man's blood. If any man or even an animal killed another man, shed the blood of a man, that man or that animal would then be required to be killed. And notice how God would require it in verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, notice this, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. God had ordained that man himself would shed the blood of a man who shed another man's blood. You follow? And this harkens back first to our earliest lessons on inherent human dignity. Recall when we were talking about this idea early on, that God made man in His image and after His likeness. We connected that in Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 9 here, where the Bible says that you do not shed the blood of man because man was made in the image of God. And through those two principles, we recognize this doctrine of inherent human dignity, that all men are created with inherent human dignity, that apart from anything else about them, Every person who shares this blood that is humanity carries with us the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean we look like God. No man has seen God at any time. But what it does mean is that we bear God's likeness, personality, character, will, body, soul, spirit. God is three parts. We are three parts. We are made in His image and after His likeness. And in that, we share inherent dignity. The dignity of humanity. This is not something that can be conferred by governments. This is something that governments are called to recognize and protect. And that's what we find here. That God is instituting an expectation that humanity would recognize and protect human dignity. The fact that we are made in the image of God means that we have intrinsic human value. And in that we have intrinsic human value, we owe one another that dignity. And no man has the right to take it away from another man. Now, we think of that as it relates to governments. And we think of that as it relates to slavery. And we think of that as it relates to racism. And all of those are, are proper applications of this idea. That it's silly for us to withhold someone inherent human dignity because they have more or less melanin in their skin. That it's silly for us to withhold human dignity because they are more or less intelligent. That it's, it's absurd for us to withhold human dignity because we have more money than someone else. That this is, this is actually a, a, a true abomination in the eyes of the Lord that we would withhold from someone their natural human dignity because of externalities. But we also find here a commission in that God has said explicitly that when a man sheds the blood of another man, by man his blood should be shed. We see a commission unto a government system, unto a system whereby man becomes regulating and not just self-regulating, but man establishes a body to regulate Himself, The first glimmers of the reality of human government and God's ordination of human government are seen here in Genesis 9. And this is important. Recall that way back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, as we see the interaction with Adam and Eve, God creating Eve and and giving her to Adam, we recognize the establishment of the first and the primary institution in society that a man would leave his father and his mother and would cleave unto his wife, and they too would become one flesh, creating the institution of the family. And the family becomes the first and primary institution that builds a society. And now we are seeing the second primary institution being built here, the institution of government. And we say being built here, let me change the word to being ordained. The first glimmers... Of the reality that human governments are considered, biblically, ordained by God. And as such, that institution is worthy of man's regard and obedience. That God has designed human government. That God has ordained human government. That doesn't mean intrinsically that he's designed all types of human government. But he has ordained human government. And as we continue in the Word of God, we see, of course, that that, uh, uh, heightened in the Old Testament with uh, the Old Testament law and the system that Israel put into place, as well as other, other governments that they interact with. But we really see this taught in its clarity in Romans chapter 13. And I know I'm jumping around a little bit today, but stick with me here. In Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, the Bible says this, "...let every soul be subject unto the higher powers." For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is a minister of God to thee for good." But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute, that's taxes. Pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So Paul elaborates here on this idea of honoring human government. And as he does so, he appeals to the fact that human government is a God-designed and God-ordained institution. Now, it's been a little while since we've talked about this, but we do understand that God has established these three primary institutions upon which society rests. He has established Government, he has established the family, and he has established the church. And he has given each one of them a realm of authority over which to operate. He has given the realm of protection and preservation of life and liberty, the avenging of evil, to government. He has given the role of raising, disciplining, training, and nurturing the next generation to the family. And he has given the church the role of protecting and proclaiming truth, and edifying the saints and in this we find government given uh, or a society brought into a place of harmony and of balance as each individual institution recognizes its responsibility before god as well as recognizing its limitations before god and when we find societies go bad is when they either eliminate one of these institutions or one of those institutions encroaches upon the others so that as the family has the responsibility to train their children, we recognize that the family has, and in our, in, in our age, homeschooling is becoming more popular, but by and large within our society, the family had delegated that to a portion of society, but it stayed within the realm of family authority. But what we've seen over the past 50 years or so is the government attempt to encroach upon the family's role of education. And as it as it has done so, we see things start to go upside down. It's the same thing that happens if the church attempts to encroach upon the family. This is one of the reasons why we're a non-age segregated church. Because it's not my job to make your children spiritual. Fathers, it's your job to make your children spiritual. It's not my job inculcate into them biblical values, it's your job to inculcate into them biblical values. It's my job to guide you along that way, to show you, to equip you with what is necessary for you then to pour that into your children. And as the, as the church starts to take on, overextend its role, things start to go upside down. And it's the same thing that happens The whole reason for the United States, when the church attempts to do the same into government, when the church encroaches upon the role of government and tries to take upon it the role of governing, everything goes upside down. Why? Because God has created a system, and that system has three primary institutions, and within those three primary institutions, each one has their role to play. And as each institution identifies their role and lives up to their role, society functions properly. When these start to be encroached upon, and you notice I I did a little Venn diagram type thing going on here, there is some overlap, right? There is some overlap with these institutions as it relates to how they interact with one another. We understand that. You can't have them entirely divorced from one another, right? You can't have a government that does not recognize intrinsic human value. That recognition of intrinsic human value is only going to be as the church is able to influence the government to show the government that there is a God in heaven unto whom they're accountable. Same thing with the family. You need the church as a part of the process of of, of doing what is necessary to raise up the next generation. And the family needs the government, and the government needs the family. It, It all interacts and interweaves one with another. But this is that balance that we see. So in Romans 13, we find the clearest teaching on the relationship between God's people and government. And in it, Paul makes clear the principle that we saw established in Genesis chapter 9, that the higher powers, human government, for the sake of constraining man's behavior is a God-ordained institution. Hence the reason why God says that when man sheds the blood of another man, by man his blood should be shed. Well, if man is going to shed other men's blood, then we need to have a system by which to regulate that. That's government. Human government for the sake of restraining man's behavior. So when a man or a woman ascends into a position of governance, they are considered by God to be a minister of God. That's what Romans 13 called them. They are a minister of God. And the implications of this are manyfold, Christian. First, God's people are obligated to obey our governors. And I don't use the word governor like Governor Waltz only but I mean governors, all of our leaders in the Lord. That to disobey our leaders is to disobey God. Now, there's a lot more to that. We're not going to get all into that today. We do recognize that Acts chapter 5, verse 29 sets down a precedent. In Acts 5, verse 29, the Sanhedrin go to Peter and the apostles and say, stop preaching the gospel. And they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. We see the exact same precedent established in the book of Esther where Mordecai is told that he must bow before Haman and he says, I bow before one man and one man alone and that is the person of God, right? I bow before God alone. We also see it in Daniel with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We talked about that last week. They would not bow before the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. They would only bow before God. So we see biblical precedent for the idea that we draw lines in as it relates to obeying human government when human government or human authority, that includes father, uh pastor, Husband, when human authority asks us to step outside of God's authority, we obey God rather than man. So we have that establishing in place. I'm I'm, I'm not preaching, I'm not not trying to overrule that principle today. It's just not what we're focusing on today. That's not the focus of our time, but it is worth remembering that because government is a God-ordained institution, just like the family before it and like the church that would come after it, it carries a divine obligation upon God's people for obedience. But it goes both ways. Government also carries a divine responsibility. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's, let's settle this submission idea. We also see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, where Peter writes this. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as them as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and for the praise of them that do well for so is the will of god that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of god honor all men love the brotherhood fear god honor the king. And I really, I, I was very tempted at this point in the sermon when I was writing it to say I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make this two or three sermons. And the reason why is because I really want to follow this, but I'm not going to. Think through this though. As free, Peter says, obey every authority as one who is free. You're, you don't obey government because you're under the thumb of government. You obey government because you're obeying your Lord. You are walking in the liberty of your Lord, and as a part of the liberty of your Lord, that liberty is calling you not to use that liberty as a cloak of maliciousness against the authorities in your life, whether that's father or husband or pastor or whatever it might be, but as a servant of God. Contemplate that as it relates to the idea of submission, Submission is a dirty word in our culture. But as, he, as, as Peter talks about submission, he talks about it as a way to exercise your liberty as unto God. Not unto men. It's nothing to do with men. It has nothing to do with the qualities or the qualifications of the men who have placed themselves over you. Look through history. Most leaders throughout history have not been qualified men. And we're, we're, I'm saying most leaders. I'm not just talking about... Governors or mayors or whatnot, we're talking about most leaders have not been people that are worth following. But that's not the operative point in the Bible. The operative point is as a servant of God. Now, the actual text, uh, focus of the text this morning naturally is upon this idea That the moment these men and women step into the positions of governance, they are divinely accountable. They are elevated into a position of authority whereby God expects the people that are under them to follow them, but God also expects them to be ministers of good. God has ordained governors to be ministers of good, commissioned to punish evil and reward righteousness. And not only are they commissioned unto this end, But they are accountable unto this end. And this brings me to a couple of thoughts. I still have a good amount to say, but kind of application thoughts this morning. And I want to think through two things. The first thing I want to think through is I want to think through the God-ordained responsibility of governments and governors. We read already in Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, which told us first that rulers are not a terror unto good works, but they are a terror unto the evil. We saw the same thing in 1 Peter. And second, it also said that the government is a revenger to execute wrath upon those that do evil. And we see the glimmers of this, as I mentioned, already in the institution in Genesis 9. We see God say, man will shed man's blood when man sheds another man's blood. We see this idea that man is intended to create an institution that God would ordain to execute judgment upon wickedness. It is a God-ordained duty of governments to be a terror to evil and to be a rewarder of good. And as the Bible tells us that this ordination is of God, this demands that the good and the evil by which governments judge men be the good and the evil of God's moral will. If God is the one who has ordained governments, then governments are accountable to God's design. To God's design. Now, this does not imply that governments are biblically obligated to enforce Judaic or Christian principles in their society, but it does acknowledge that governors are obligated to fear God and recognize God's preeminence, the preeminence of His moral design upon all men, upon all tribes, upon all tongues. And whether pagan or Christian, the degree to which a society will find stability and peace is the degree to which its leaders align with God's moral design. Again, I'm not saying theocracy. What I'm saying is murder, stealing, covetousness, those things that lead to what we would call civil crimes. Those are things which are universal, recognized in every culture, recognized in every society as the design by which men operate. Now, as we are in Genesis 9, it's worth our time to take a particular look at the manner in which Genesis 9 espouses this idea. There is a tremendous amount of controversy, even in the church today, about the idea of capital punishment, that a person should be killed by the state for certain crimes. But is that not what we read in Genesis 9? The idea of capital punishment is a reflection of the concept that when a man sheds the blood of a man, in order to satisfy natural justice, that man's blood should be shed. Why? Not explicitly because we're vindictive, but because he dishonored The dignity of man, the dignity, the natural human dignity, the image of God in man. He defiled that image. When a man murders another man, he does not just harm that man. He blasphemes the image of God. And something has to be done about that. And this is where God instituted this requirement. Going all the way back to the law of Moses, we see that there is a, there's gradations to this idea even in the law of Moses, all cultures and civilizations have specified what kind of shedding of blood is worthy of such consequences. In the law of Moses, we see that the, that death in the heat of anger is a little bit different than premeditated murder. We see that, that there's there's gradations going all the way from uh, uh, manslaughter to first degree murder within the law of Moses, and they all had different consequences connected to them. So we understand that. We recognize that this is not a one-to-one. If any man is responsible for the death of any man, without question, without, without uh, any sort of thought, that man needs to die. Well, no, that, that's a bit overly simplistic. But among those in society who have a disregard for the image of God in man and the natural dignity to which he is entitled by his life, the only divine prescription is that when he disregards the image of man in his brother, and by brother there I don't mean blood brother, but in another human being, he is, by virtue of him disregarding the image of God in that man, forfeiting his own right to his own human dignity. And the divine prescription then is life for life that his life is forfeit, that when at once a man takes it upon himself, he takes upon himself the role of God because it is God's job to take life as it is God's job to give life. When he takes upon himself the role that is God's and God's alone and he takes another life unjustly, he has chosen thus to forfeit his own life. And there is only one institution that has been given by God the authority to be the executor of that justice and that's government. And you say, well, pastor, wait a minute. What about self-defense? Well, yeah. But as we think of the right to self-defense, this is an extension of the government saying we can't be everywhere at once, so we are giving our citizens the authority to take a life in the manner that we would do so if we were there. And that's what self-defense is. Self-defense is the idea that a society, a government says, we are in charge of rewarding good and punishing evil. But our, in this case, police officers cannot be everywhere. If you need a police officer in three minutes, he will be there in five. And that's not a flaw, that's just the way it is. So they've said, we are giving our citizens the right to self-defense as a means by which to make up for the lack of capacity that we have to defend them ourselves. Thus, when one defends themselves and takes a life in self-defense, they are doing so as an extension of the authority that the government has been given by God to reward evil or to, to punish evil and to reward good. You see how that works? Now, we live in a society that doesn't quite live out this way properly anymore. We live in a society that has, by and large, rejected the concept of capital punishment. It's argued that the death penalty falls under cruel and unusual punishment, that it lacks fundamental human compassion, or even that, as it relates to among Christians, that those who would call themselves pro-life as it relates to abortion are hypocrites if they also support the death penalty. None of these ideas are particularly consistent, however, with truth and reason. It is not necessarily cruel and unusual punishment to take the life of a man who has taken the life of another. As we've said, when a man shows so little respect for the natural human dignity of a a fellow human that he takes his life, the historical idea has been he is forfeiting his own in turn. We might argue that it is cruel and unusual to deny the family or friends or society the cleansing act of justice which removes the stain of innocent blood through the death of the guilty, but it's not necessarily in line with reason to contend that death is cruel and unusual upon a man who has already forfeited his dignity by taking the dignity of another. It does not reflect lack of human compassion to right a wrong committed against a soul through the death of one who has killed him. We call that justice. And it certainly isn't in any way inconsistent to both advocate for the life of the innocent while also advocating for the death of the guilty. Which is fundamentally... which What is fundamentally absurd is that we find ourselves in a society that is simultaneously advocating for the death of the innocent and the life of the guilty. It's on its head. Society is turned on its head calling good evil and evil good in that Isaiah sort of a way. God has ordained leaders, governors, governments to be a terror to evil and a rewarder of good. And when they do the opposite, they fail at their God-ordained purpose. Now second, on the God-ordained accountability of governors and governments. So we've talked about the responsibility of governors and governments. It is to reward good and to punish evil. As we look at that within the scope of Genesis chapter 9, we see a precedent laid out here for this idea that we would call capital punishment, whereby when a man takes the life of another man, he blasphemes God by by blaspheming the, the, the image of God that is in that man, his natural human dignity, and thus he has forfeited his own right to his own dignity. But what about their accountability? And this is where things get more hopeful. We know that the government is a God-ordained institution. We know that those who step into the government are stepping into a divinely ordained work. We've established that, Romans 13. We don't often think of it this way, probably because nearly every governor and politician and political leader in our knowledge is far more aligned with the devil than with God. But Romans 13 is not ambiguous on this point of God-ordained responsibility, a God-ordained authority. But we also see that with authority comes accountability. As Jesus would say in Luke 12, verse 48, to whom much is given, much is required. Responsibility... Comes with accountability. Whether pagan or Christian, whether these people believe it or not, whether they care or not, those who govern are accountable to God for how they govern. There's coming a day when they will stand before God. And on that day, they will not just answer for how they lived their life, they will answer for how they governed. And they may stand before God and say, but God, I didn't know I was accountable. I didn't believe in you. I didn't care what you had to think. And it's not going to matter because they will be held accountable all the same. Proverbs 29, verse 2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked bear rule, beareth rule, the people mourn. We today are heaving under the weight of wicked leaders. And because of this wickedness, the people are mourning. We see this morning in the injustice which we find all around us where we locally as a nation exalt the very vilest among us and so in agreement with Psalm 12 verse 8 the wicked walk boldly on every side. And That's why we see crime going up. That's why we see the danger going up. We see this because The vilest men are exalted because the wicked are bearing rule because wickedness is emboldened in this time. And in this we find that our leaders are blatantly, effectively scorning their God-ordained responsibility. It is not the responsibility of government to formulate social safety nets. It is not the responsibility of government to uh, regulate All of the the laws in and out of business. And I'm not getting into a political discussion per se today. But those are not the things we find biblically they're responsible for. They may add those things on and we can have a debate about that in in all sorts of forums. But what we do know is this. There's one thing that they are divinely accountable for. To reward good and to punish evil. And when the government fails at doing that, that's when the people mourn. This is their God-ordained responsibility. Now, here's the funny thing, though, about any God-ordained responsibility. Whether that's the governor, or whether that's the father, or whether that's the husband, or whether that's the pastor, within those realms of, of institutional authority, the flaws of the leaders, the failures of the leaders don't just impact the leaders, do they? My failures as a pastor and a husband and a father will will touch my children, my wife, and my congregation. And the failures of government leaders will impact their citizens. And as it relates to authority, there aren't a vast number of biblical solutions to the problem. Children, you don't have a whole lot of resources at your disposal to solve the problem of a father whose decisions are causing you pain. Wives, you do not have a whole lot of biblical solutions there. And again, with each one, there's some, but there's not a vast number of biblical solutions when the husband is not being the kind of leader he ought to be. But take heart in this. Every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And father, husband, pastor, governor, each one will not just answer for themselves. They will answer for the responsibilities that they have been given in the God-ordained institutions that, over which they have been appointed. Yes, husband, you stepped into that role. You're stepping into a divinely appointed role and you will be held accountable. Father, you stepped into that role. It's a divinely appointed role. You will be held accountable. Pastor, you stepped into this pulpit. It's a divinely ordained responsibility. I will be held accountable. And every leader who steps into the governing of society will be held accountable. Make no mistake, Christian. The God of justice who laid upon governors the responsibility of exalting justice in their lands. You may not be able to hold them accountable in your day. You may read the newspaper and be terribly frustrated and wish that we could... I I often say, I wish we could bring back tar and feathering. At least that, right? At least tar and feathering. If nothing else, let's bring back tar and feathering. We can shame these guys. We can run them out of town. We don't do that anymore. And, and, and at least tarn feathering. You got a little sliver of some sort of justice, right? Something where you could just feel like you got a little bit back from these people who have done these terrible things to you. We don't get a whole lot of that today. Our leaders, they do their wickedness and they walk away unscathed most of the time. And it's not new to this, this generation. It's always been that way. But this is our hope, Christian. It's a tremendous consolation in this life that these wicked and corrupt men may go to their grave having escaped justice in this life, but they cannot escape the justice of the one who sees all and who knows all. Because going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, we find that God ordained a subset of men to mete out His justice on this earth. And when they stepped into that position with all of the opportunities that it afforded them, it also afforded them direct accountability reward good, punish evil, And God holds those who govern to this standard, whether they believe him or not. So it says in Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, the Bible says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Human governors have always decided that they're better than, that, that, that they don't need God, that they don't need to obey God, that they can set themselves up against God that they can ignore the natural human dignity in man, that they can strip from man his human dignity if they desire to do so. Human governments have always thought this, and as they think this, and they think they're getting away with it, the Bible says that the Lord is in the heavens laughing until we get to verses 10 and 11, where the instruction comes in. Be wise now, therefore, O kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Why? Because there's coming a day when they'll stand before him. whether they like it or not. And that should comfort our hearts in these days where the leaders of our state and nation have failed to fear God and instead reward evil and punish good. And may this give us a needful perspective in these days of injustice, a perspective which, by God's grace, will sustain your joy in the midst of some difficult things. But I don't want to leave it there today. Because if there's one thing that I really, really don't ever want to do and I really dislike doing as it relates to when I'm teaching you on something like this, I don't like leaving the finger pointing out. Because it's always easy to look outward at those around us and see how they fail. Always. I mean, that's an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing to do. It's easy to be dissatisfied with others and be frustrated with others and to look at others and say why are they doing why aren't they doing what they ought to do why why aren't they living up to what they should be living up to but you know usually the reason why humans are doing that is so that we don't look at ourselves and realize how far short we fall There's a man used to come to this church and he used to always say he used to always always give that cliche when there's a finger pointing out there's three pointing back right and it's true it's absolutely true Cliche though it may be. We don't say the things that we say. We don't look at the flaws of our system or of the people in the system. We don't do that in order that we might look and say, Oh, look how evil they are and how 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 good we are. We're not painting this this as some sort of contrast. We're acknowledging. We're acknowledging when 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 when, when those in, in leadership fail. We're acknowledging that we are in difficult times because of it. That's fine. We can acknowledge that. But far be it from us to pretend as though we don't have anything to work on ourselves, right? While the Bible is a book that comforts us concerning those that are around us, it's primarily a book which calls us to contemplate first and foremost that which is within us. Calling us to focus not upon the injustice around us. And this is the blessing of it. You say, well, pastor, you've just relieved me from having to focus all of my time upon griping about the, pe- the kings and the, and the rulers and the governors and the people that are around me. What am I going to do with all that time now? How can I live if I'm not angry at someone? <laughs> right? what, what am I going to do with all that time? Well, let, let, let's, let's, let's turn our eyes in a different direction. First, let's turn our eyes to praise. God will take care of the, the leaders. And you know, we, we have our opportunities, at least in theory, to switch them up in this country. Thank God for that. When the Bible was written, they didn't exactly have that opportunity. Remember when Peter is saying, honor the king, the king that was there at that time was a king who was gearing up to persecute the Christians in a way that we've not seen in a long time. His name is Nero. So as we think through this idea, God has lifted from us the need to be constantly frustrated with and angry at and, 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 and thinking of vengeance toward those who have wronged us, those in leader who have wronged us. We don't need to, we don't need to dwell on that because vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. God will take care of them. What do we do now? Well, let's do this instead. First, of course, we rejoice in the Lord, we find that joy. But let us also be determined that in the same way we look at those who are around us and we uh, might look with dissatisfaction at the manner in which they're disposing their God given responsibilities, let us turn that inward and, and ask this question How am I disposing of my God given responsibilities? God will take care of the governor, God will take care of your mayor, God will take care of your president, God will deal with them. What about the people that are under you? What about the people for whom you are responsible and accountable? What about the manner in which you are disposing your authority, husband, parent, employer, supervisor? What about how you're living before God, before your authorities? Child, wife, citizen. Church member, we might take a measure of comfort in the thought that those who have wronged us will be held accountable, but let us not forget that so too will we, that we'll all stand before that judgment seat of Christ. And as Peter says it in that same book where he said, honor the king, judgment will actually begin at the house of God. And since we are able, by faith, to leave vengeance of our wicked leaders to God, Let us then turn our eyes and our efforts toward our own responsibilities and let us work those responsibilities out with our own fear and trembling. Serving the Lord with fear. Rejoicing with trembling. Lest on that day we look across and we see those who were our enemies, who we were envisioning their justice and we find that we're there too lest on that day we find ourselves in just as fearful a state as those men and women under whom we've To that end, how are you doing today? I've given you a lot today, and I, I, it was a bit of a scattered message. I apologize for that. I hope you were able to follow it through its various steps and incarnations. Tried to give you the broad picture and bring it down, a lot of information. But how are you doing? Yep. Wickedness, leaders... God-ordained, not living up to it. God will take care of that. We've learned that today. What about you? How are you doing? Are you living up to the responsibilities God has given to you? Will you be able to hold your head up on that day of judgment with what you've done even today toward those that you are responsible for? And may God help us, young, young people, gearing up for that responsibility. You're the next generation of the family. You're the next generation of the church. For all I know, you're the next generation of the government. Are you ready to step into those roles and do as God has ordained you to do? Do not take it lightly, for it is a God-ordained responsibility. May God help us to dispose those responsibilities in our own lives with faith and obedience unto His glory